Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you, Roy. Uh, I'd asked Roy if we could sing that song, Great is the Darkness, really because of the honesty that is expressed in the first verse and its accurate description of the world that we live in. A dark place where oppression, injustice and pain exist. Uh, Noel Richards wrote that song 17 years ago, but approximately 3,000 years before 1992, the reality of life on planet Earth was no different. Pain was inevitable. Injustice was every bit as frustrating as it is for us today, as we thought about last week, and oppression was heartbreaking. And in a sense, that's the backdrop as we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, it's page 670 in the Bibles in the pews, if, if you do want to follow along. But what we do is in this chapter is we find the searcher, as we have come to describe him, Solomon, expressing these really depressing yet incredibly relevant words. Let's just read the first verse. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors. And they have no comforter. And in light of what the searcher sees, he's got no option other than to despair. You're better off dead than have to endure this, is what he says in verse 2. In fact, he even goes further than that. He says, not only are you better off dead, but you're happier than the living. And at one level, you can understand that perspective. Because even as we look around us today, we discover that our world is rife with oppression. Roy's already mentioned a number of countries where oppression is currently taking place. Cambodia is another. Let me just read you an excerpt from an article that I came across recently. The history of Cambodia is littered with tragedies brought about by the oppression of the weak by the powerful. Power and its abuse seems to be a constant theme that spreads its destructive influence through all levels of society there. On Saturday morning, I witnessed yet another display of this naked power being used to crush those who are weak and who are poor in order that the rich and the powerful of this city might take something from those who already have so little. And you read similar stories of oppression in Zimbabwe this week. In Burma this week. And you're constantly discovering that oppression is still wrecking lives. And therefore you can understand or at least identify with the searcher's sense of despair. And in verse 3, if you look at that, his thoughts spiral further downwards. Because he reaches a place of saying, Do you know, there's an even more fortunate group of people. There's an even more fortunate person than the living or the dead. And that's those who have never been born. Verse 3 says, but better than both, both the living and the dead is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil. Or as the message puts it, luckier than the dead or the living is the person who has never even been. And again, if you're honest, I think you can sympathize with that perspective. Because as you watch 
the news and as you listen to the reports of man's inhumanity to man, you sometimes think no one should have to witness that. No one should be exposed to the evil that we sometimes see around us. No one should have to live through the nightmare of having their daughter snatched while on holiday. No one should have to see their colleague gunned down in front of them in Afghanistan. If Jerry and Kate McCann hadn't been born, they wouldn't have had to have gone through the last two years of deep distress and anxiety and pain. If that soldier hadn't been born, he wouldn't have had to witness his colleague die beside him last week in Helmand province. And the the searcher Solomon doesn't offer us any hope at this stage. He simply reflects the reality of what he sees, or what he sees under the sun, and he shares his thoughts, but he simply moves on to verse 4, and the focus shifts. But I want to just make a few comments about oppression. Because although our natural reaction, at least my natural reaction, when I read stories from Cambodia and Zimbabwe and Burma and countless other places, my natural reaction is despair. But that cannot be the only reaction of a Christian who claims to follow Jesus in 2009. And I know I'm going off script slightly, but I think it's worth doing for a moment or two. You see, years after Solomon wrote those words, Jesus Christ entered our world. He stepped into a context of oppression and injustice and pain. And as he launched his ministry, he stood up in a synagogue in Nazareth and he issued his manifesto. And you can read the entire speech. There it is in Luke 4. But included within that inaugural address was a commitment to release the oppressed. Because this was to become a key characteristic of the ministry of Jesus. And in a very real sense, a very real sense, the ministry of Jesus continues to be our ministry. We are to release the oppressed. We are to speak good news to the poor. We are to proclaim freedom for the captives. Sight for the blind. And although despair, such as the searcher expressed, is a natural reaction, we as Christians have got to stand up and speak out for the oppressed. We need to get behind organizations like Tear Fund and many others like them who actually are there on behalf of those who exist within an atmosphere of oppression. We need to pray for those who are oppressed. And like the searcher, we need to see their tears the searcher in verse 1 says I saw their tears and they have no comforter but we as Christians who follow Christ have got to see the tears of the oppressed and then we have got to draw alongside and provide the comfort and reflect the heart and ministry of Jesus in the world in the context in which we live in Wilberforce and many others did exactly that They looked around, they saw oppression, they despaired, yes, but then they moved beyond that and they took action. Okay, back on track. Uh, In verses 4 to 6, the writer then revisits the issue of work and of labour, a a subject that he has made comment on in chapter 1 and then dealt with in a little more detail in chapter 2, but he's now back on it. So let's uh, let's read this together, if you have a Bible in front of you. Verse 4. 
And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And you'll notice that he he picks up on what he sees as the driving force of so many people. Envy. Envy of their neighbours. The mindset and this incentive to keep up with the Joneses. Hope there are no Joneses here. I couldn't say that in Valentine's because there was an entire Jones family and I kept offending them every time I did say that. But someone has said that it's not that people work hard in order to have certain things. It's that people work hard in order to be seen as having certain things. And there is a very clear distinction between those two approaches in life. And what is the point? We buy a particular car, maybe a house, a gadget. We go on a particular holiday. Not just because we necessarily want to, but because we want to outdo. We want to get one up on. We want to impress. We want to keep up with those who are around us, our colleagues, our friends, and our literal neighbours. And what is the point, the searcher asks? Working harder than we need to and longer than we have to because we envy the perceived standard of living and lifestyle of those around us is, from his perspective, meaningless. You might as well just go and chase the wind. And this issue raises so many other issues like motivation and competition. What is it that motivates us? The competitive streak runs through lots of us. I can tell you it runs right through me. And obviously competition can be a healthy thing in sport and in work. It can be stretching. Competition can be character forming. I'm not knocking the desire to do well, to do the best you can. But competition does have a dark side. It can degenerate into becoming self-centered, nasty, vindictive, resentful, bitter, jealous, envious. It is a dog-eat-dog world out there. It is a rat race, we are told. But we're not dogs, we're not rats, we're human beings. And there may be a popular philosophy out there founded on the belief that we are all competitive individualists. And that may be so. Maybe we are. Maybe there's more than a ring of truth to that perspective. But we need to be aware and we need to accept and we need to recognize that that philosophy has spiritual, personal and social consequences. Spiritually, you will be left empty. Because remember, as we thought about last week, eternity has been set in the hearts of men. Ecclesiastes 3 and 11. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man and no amount of human endeavor and no amount of material possessions and things will fill that God-shaped vacuum. And personally and socially, we risk loneliness, we risk isolation. Unhealthy competition has this ability to drive wedges between us and others. And as a result of being so busy and so driven, there is an inevitable knock-on effect in our relationships. Our relationships with our families, our relationships with our colleagues, our relationships with those around us. And so the searcher says, do you know, if that's what motivates you, if it all springs from this envy, envy of your neighbor, then it's all just meaningless. But just in case you think he's advocating a life of sitting around 
and doing nothing or at least doing as little as possible. He says that those who adopt this approach to life are fools. And in biblical language, that's a very strong word. It's a very strong term to use to describe anyone. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands. He sits back. He opts out. He puts their feet up. But look at the result according to the searcher. Because look at how verse 5 ends. It says he ruins himself. I love this particular version. The ESV version of this. Because it translates it very explicitly. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. You see, laziness leads to self-destruction. Idleness eats away at who we are. It eats away at who we were created to be. You see, although at times depressing, the realism of these words I find so refreshing. Verse 6 then is a poetic masterpiece. And the imagery of it is brilliant. Let me quote it again. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. See, in verse 5, we've had the folded hands of a lazy fool. Here, in verse 6, we have two more hand references. Two more pictures. We have the one handful picture and approach to work. In other words, not driven by greed, not driven by envy. We work hard, yes, but there's balance. There's still one hand free to do other things, to enjoy other activities. And the searcher says, listen, that's not only a better approach to work, but it will actually lead to peace and tranquility in your life. And how true that is. But the second picture, the second reference depicts a two-handful approach to work. That's the approach of the workaholic. Laboring through almost every hour that God sends. No time to do, no hands free to do or pursue anything else. It's a tough slog. It's a daily grind. It's a toil, as the searcher says. And again, he finishes by saying, listen, all you're doing is just chasing after the wind. So work is important. Don't drop out. But at the same time, don't get sucked in. And again, how relevant is that advice in the 21st century? Let's move on. Solomon is about to uh, emphasize and stress the value and the importance of friendship. But before he goes there, he just connects what he's been saying about work with what he's about to say. Look at verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. Loneliness. Mother Teresa once said that she believed the greatest epidemic of the 20th century was loneliness. And 30 centuries earlier, the searcher observed a man suffering from the symptoms. And as a result, it seems, as a result of his loneliness, he buries himself in work. Because look at verse 8. There was no end to his toil. The trouble was that that only rubbed salt into his wounds. He did make lots of money. But not only was he not content with the money he made, as it says there, but he soon realized, I've no one to share it with. I'm still lonely. So what was the point of all that? For whom am I toiling, he asks. And so the reality of his loneliness increases. The sense of his meaningless intensifies. And so the searcher concludes at the end of verse 8, What? A miserable business. And so is there any hope? Is there a way forward? Is there a cure? Well, the answer is friendship. 
there is a positive message tonight. (laughs) The answer is friendship, companionship, intimacy. And I came across uh, this quote during the week. Written 20 years ago, we live in a society in which isolation is commonplace. In the impersonal climate of an industrial society, even more people obviously suffer from a sense of loneliness. The loneliness of the lonely crowd. And understandably, the intense wish emerges to compensate for this lack of warmth with closeness. People cry for intimacy. And I think the searcher would echo those sentiments. And so from verses 9 to 12, now they're familiar words. They're often read at weddings. Although I'm not sure that Solomon had marriage in mind when he wrote them. But in verses 9 to 12, he stresses the value and the importance of friendship. And he begins in verse 9, look at it with me. Two are better than one. Because they have a great return or a good return for their work. And I know there is definitely a sense here that two can achieve more. That's stating the obvious. But if you dig a little deeper, you unearth this idea of receiving a good return from a wise investment. And the very best investment you will ever make in life is not a financial one, but it's a relational one. Someone has suggested there there are two things that you can commit your life to. Either you can build empires and accumulate possessions, or you can build relationships and gather friends. And the searcher then goes on and he gives us three benefits, three advantages of friendship. Or another way of looking at this is he describes three characteristics of a real friend. And so I suppose where I'm going here and where I want us to finish up tonight is I want you to ask yourself, does this describe me? Am I this sort of a friend? A real friend helps you when you're down. Let me read verse 10. If they fall down, they can help each other up. But pity those who fall and have no one to help them up. Can I ask a question? How many here are on Facebook? Stick your hand in the air. Come on, confession time. See, look, how, look at the number of people. A social, for those who don't know, Facebook is a social networking website. Question, how many friends do you have? Okay. How many friends? I have confessed, I have 123 friends. Question is, do I? Do I really? I never, uh, I never thought I would quote Owen Quigg in church. <laughs> but there's been a sort of music theme running right through this series, and I didn't want to disappoint. But the X Factor final, or runner-up, should I say, from Northern Ireland has just released a single. Does anyone know the title of the single? Young people, you're going to need to help the older people out. Anyone know the name of the single? Dave Wise is shrinking at the back because he does know. (laughs) The single is 28,000 Friends. And it's a single that's having just a real dig at the likes of Facebook. Because one of the lines reads like this, how does it feel to be alone, so many friends that you don't know? And you know, there are probably lots of people in our lives that we would call acquaintances, probably not 28,000. But there's only a few we would describe as real friends. Do you know my real friends aren't my friends on Facebook? In fact, none of my real friends are on Facebook. Friends, real friends, are those who are there through the good times and the bad times, not those who are there online. They're there in the highs and the lows of life. It's the type of friend that is described in another piece of wisdom 
that says a friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in times of need. Proverbs 17, 17. A real friend, a true friend, picks you up when you're down. But to search your ads a sobering reality, people who are alone, verse 10 ends, people who are alone when they fall are in real trouble. And you know, there's nothing as sad as someone going through the mill and then discovering they have no one to help them when they're dying. And within a church context, that should never happen. No one should ever find themselves in that place. Let me show you some words and see if anybody can identify where they come from. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Who can tell me where that's from? Yeah, theme tune from Cheers. Written about a pub in Chicago. Could it be written about this church in Belfast? I don't know. I hope so. I hope that we will become the kind of church, become the kind of friends who reach out and who help each other when they're dying. And I know that is happening right across this place. But it needs to keep happening. We need to keep guarding that. Second thing, two more to finish. A real friend provides warmth. Do you know this has got to be a bit more than physical warmth? And that's why I think it's one of the reasons why this is read at weddings. But you know the cold winds of life blow hard at times. The bitter chill of winter is a keenly felt reality. And we all go through those seasons of life. And therefore we need to know, we need to experience the warmth of friendship at an emotional level. True friends provide that for us. True friends get alongside us. True friends wrap their arms around us. True friends stay close to us. True friends provide emotional and physical warmth in a sometimes cold and cruel world. And finally, a real friend defends you. It's just really hard to fight battles on your own. I don't know what battles you're fighting at the minute. But whenever these words were originally written, it was into a context where a lot of military combat was hand-to-hand fighting. And so the soldiers often went into battle with a partner, someone they could count on, someone they could trust with their very lives. And so they would stand back-to-back so that they could fight together and deal with whatever or whoever came from them from whatever side. And I say, I don't know what you're up against at the moment. But you know, if you have a friend who will stand with you, if you have a friend who will share your struggle, if you have a friend who will defend you, who will watch your back, then it makes such a difference to your life. Question, am I, are we, are you, that sort of a friend? And then the searcher finishes with that classic phrase, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And again, verse often read at weddings with the idea that husband plus wife plus God is the cord of three strands. It's good, it's helpful, but in this context, I think the searcher's making the point that it's not just about having one friend. Having two, three, four friends who pick you up, who provide warmth, who defend you, that's what will make you strong. And so to sum up this evening, oppression's real. Despair's natural. The tangent, rather than feel helpless, Let's follow the example of Jesus and stand up for the oppressed.
Working all the hours that God sends to keep up, it's pointless. Sitting around, doing very little, that's foolish. Please adopt the one handful approach to work. Loneliness is heartbreaking, but friendship's critical. And next week, our meaningless message looks at the searcher's take on authentic spirituality and the myth of money. Again, two highly relevant subjects for the 21st century.